0: Father, thank you for the honor that it is, the the blessing that it is to serve you, the living God, to know you personally and to work alongside you as you've given us opportunity. And we thank you, Father, that you've revealed your glory to us in your Son. For apart from him, Father, we could know nothing of you. We wouldn't know of you. We wouldn't have a relationship with you. We couldn't be in your presence without the fear of judgment. We wouldn't see your glory. We wouldn't see you at work. We would be in this world, but we would be without a knowledge of you and far from you. That's who we were before faith, before we could come to know you through faith in Christ. And because of the faith that we now have in the death of your son on the cross, we can be a child of God and we can have access to these things. And we thank you for that, Father. It's a—it's an easy thing for us to overlook this in the the back and forth of day-to-day trial and tribulation. As we concern ourselves, Father, with what we earn, where we live, with family relationships, with career goals, with health concerns, with the things that constitute everyday life, we forget, Father, that this is not the life, but a temporary existence. This is not the fulfillment of our purpose. This is a distraction in many ways from that purpose. It's the place in which we serve you. It's not the place that defines us. And so, Father, I thank you that you have the word given to us in the way that it is by the work of men like Ezekiel so that we'd be reminded that this world is fading and passing away. It's not permanent. It's not real. Not in an eternal sense. It's temporary. But there is a glory to come, one we will share in. There is a place to come, one we will serve you in. We want to be ready for those things. We want to be servants now so that we may please you for the day in which we stand before you. And I pray, Father, we're thinking about that future day as we study about the things of the past here in the book of Ezekiel. And you use this time to prepare us for that future day of glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the last two weeks, we went through chapter 1 of Ezekiel. And in that chapter, we saw that remarkable vision that God gave to Ezekiel of his glory revealed in these manifested ways. And it came to him as he sat among exiles of Judah in Babylon. The enemy of God's people had come, taken the nation of Judah out of the land, hauled them back to Babylon, put them in a little town next to a man-made river, and kept them there. And they eventually stayed there for 70 plus years. Some of them never leave never go home. While they're seated there, they're under judgment. God's brought them there because he's upset, to use our terminology, he's upset at them for what they have failed to do in keeping with their promises under the old covenant. They haven't honored him, they haven't kept his word, they haven't lived according to the law, they haven't worshipped only him. And as Ezekiel is seated with them, a man caught up in this judgment because he's part of Israel, God brings him a vision. Now remember that the cornerstone, the chief part of this vision was God seated on his throne in his glory. But what was most remarkable about that vision, if you remember, was that the focus of the vision was not on God on his throne, which is sort of the opposite of what you would have expected, right? What was the focus of chapter 1? What do you remember the most? It's those angelic guardians of God's glory. The cherubim, the highest order of angelic beings. Those cherubim dominated the description, didn't they? Which would tell us that God wanted those cherubim to leave the greater impression on Ezekiel, and therefore on us. And he did so to make a point. And let me summarize the point from last two weeks, from the chapter we just studied. And we're going to do that by just revisiting three essential details about the cherubim. First, you remember the cherubim had four faces on each side, or the four sides of their head. Very unusual, right? Very strange to us. That's how God designed them. They also had four wings, Remember? And the number four in Scripture has a symbolic meaning. We learn that meaning by watching how God uses that number over and over again in Scripture. What's the meaning of the number four in Scripture? It's the number of the earth. Of the earth. And you can see that reflected in some of the things we say, like the four winds, the four corners of the earth, the four cardinal directions. These things are not coincidence. They're part of the fact that God has chosen to embed the number four into the design of the earth. To make a point that whenever you see four, think earth, think creation. So you have these four faces. And the faces themselves God chose to use, man at first, ox and lion on the side, eagle in the back, those creatures represent the divisions of earthly animals that God established in the creation week. Man, beasts, domesticated animals, and birds. So when you put all this together, you learn that the cherubim represent... The earth. That is, they represent all creation in what they do in service to God. So we're to see them as a poster child for us and all creation. What they do, we should be doing. That's the idea. Well, what were they doing? Well, the next thing, the next point from that vision, probably the most gripping piece of that whole chapter were these elaborate wheels, wheels within a wheel, that the cherubim were transported on as they accompanied the glory of God. We're told that the Spirit was in the wheels so that wherever the Lord's glory went in His creation, the Spirit would carry these cherubim in perfect synchronicity, instantly. They moved like lightning, without turning, without diverting, so they were never distracted, they were never delayed in attending to God's glory. Their every moment was dedicated to that task, upholding the glory of God. That's the second thing we noticed. And then thirdly, finally, with those four wings, what were they doing? Well, two of them were upholding the throne of God, upholding Him. He was sitting on them, enshrined, it says, on them. Now we said last week, God doesn't need angelic beings to hold Him up. He has assigned them that role, though, so that they can set the example for us, for all creation, on how we should serve God in our own ways. They set the gold standard for all creation in how God's glory must be our priority, our purpose is to uphold God's glory and in particular Israel as a nation was created by God out of nothing so that they as a nation could perform that task among all the nations of the earth because serving the living God well requires a dedicated focus on that particular goal on upholding the glory of God without distractions without delay and doing it to fulfill our created purpose. And I should add, that's how you'll find fulfillment in your life. So we share in this mission to uphold His glory. Ultimately, we'll share in His glory when we're in His presence. But I think a lot of Christians, as I said last week, live without that thought. They don't understand. They don't give any consideration to the thought that I'm here on earth to uphold the glory of God. Like Israel as a nation was doing in their day, we individually or collectively as the church are to do the same thing today. And if you don't think about it, you're likely to fail In doing it by your self centeredness, by our thinking only of ourselves, this world, what we can get in it, and the like, we are at risk of offending the God who has called us and saved us by His grace. And that was the condition of Israel in Ezekiel's day. They served themselves rather than serving their mission of upholding God's glory, which is why they're sitting in Babylon now in captivity. But there's a lot more God wants to explain to Ezekiel. So now, what He's going to do in chapter 2. Is he proceeds to call this man Ezekiel, this man who's been training his whole life to be a priest, he calls him now as a prophet to speak to the people of God. And he gives him a very sobering assignment. And this assignment will make clear to us very quickly why God needed Ezekiel's mission to begin with this particular vision. And start there with me. Chapter 2, I'll read chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Then he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak to you. As he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. Then he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. I am sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. As for them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet... Has been among them. The Lord's first words to Ezekiel are this stand on your feet. Now, at the end of chapter 1, if you look, just glance back up the page, you'll notice how Ezekiel responded initially to the vision as he sees this marvelous vision of God. He falls on his face. We would say prostrate, that would be the term we'd use. Literally, just down like a dead man in front of this image. And, of course, that makes some sense. He's just witnessed this, the majesty of God, the power of God, this revelation of incredible beings standing in front of him. I mean, you can certainly get why he's down on the ground. That's a proper response. It's, it's a response of humility. It's a response of reverence. If you want to know what reverence means, this is a good example of what reverence requires. But then, almost immediately, it seems, the Lord says, Get up. Stand on your feet. Now, there's a striking contrast between what you see God doing here with Ezekiel And the way he dealt with Moses at the moment he first revealed himself to Moses. Do you remember that scene out of Exodus? Or did you see the movie? Charlton Heston, remember? Let me just read three verses from that moment. Okay, and you may remember the scene as you hear the words. In Exodus 3, verse 4, when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside, remember Moses is out in the wilderness leading the sheep, goats, whatever, and the bush is burning? Remember, and Moses is like, there's a bush burning. Let me go check this out. He says, when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to look at the bush, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Then the Lord said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Do you see something interesting about these two moments? Isn't one the direct opposite of the other? Moses, in his case, he approached God standing, with sandals on for that matter, which prompted the Lord to tell Moses, you know, you ought to be showing greater reverence right now. And that led Moses to hide his face. When it says he hid his face, it means most likely that he put himself down on the ground in the very posture that Ezekiel started with. But when Ezekiel comes to God in his moment, he starts by falling down, and God's response to him is, no, 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 get up. So which is it? What are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to show reverence or readiness before the Lord? Well, you know the answer is yes, right? <laughs> right. Both of those responses are required if you're going to serve the Lord. Service to God requires both an acknowledgment of His holiness and His authority and a readiness to stand up and serve him, and they come in that order. In Moses' case, he had not recognized that he was standing in the presence of the glory of God. He didn't understand what was going on, obviously. So he approached God in a way that lacked reverence, lacked appreciation for the holiness of God. And so God told Moses, you need to treat this ground as holy, you need to acknowledge my holiness, which he did. And in a way, that scene captures perfectly the relationship you see between Moses and God all the way through his ministry. if you know much about his story, you'll understand what I'm describing here. But in my assessment, if you will, of Moses, and I'm sure when I see him face-to-face, I'll have to say sorry for this, and he'll tell me, you know, that was really way off, Steve. But he seemed like he was almost too ready to serve God. You remember back in, in Egypt before he goes off to Midian when he's only 40 years old and he's still in the Pharaoh's house, he jumped the gun at that point in his life and he kills the slave master who was beating the Jewish slave because he thinks this is his time. And then he's surprised to find when Israel doesn't rally behind him, right? So he has to run away from Pharaoh. That was 40 years too early in a way. And then later, in his ministry of serving God, he's always struggling with the power and the authority of God to work through him. Remember in his original calling, he gives God reason why he can't be useful to God. I can't talk. I can't do these things. Send somebody else. And then even when in the desert, when he's dealing with a stubborn Israel, that keeps rebelling, right? He keeps going back to God saying, Why do I have to deal with these people? I don't know what to do with them. It's not my fault they won't listen. He was struggling with the fact that God can work through him despite all of those, those difficulties, which is why God reminds Moses over and over again, I have the authority. I have the power. What is that in your hand? A staff. Throw it down. Look what I did with it. You see there? We can handle this together. That was Moses' issue. Not necessarily enough reverence for the power and the authority of God. Not at moments, anyway. Moments of doubt. Now, God also reminded Ezekiel of the need to be humble. He even addresses him here as son of man. That's a term that means literally son of Adam. It's a way of reminding us that we have a humble origin. We're just made of dirt. But God dealt differently with Ezekiel than he did with Moses because I think this prophet demonstrates an opposite weakness. And you see it starting even here. Ezekiel is going to get a really tough assignment. He's going to be told to go to a bunch of people that don't want to hear what he has to say and give them bad news. And as a result, they're all going to treat him really badly. They're going to feel sorry for this guy. And reverence for God is a necessary prerequisite, and He shows it here. But the thing is, it's not sufficient. Just being reverential is not sufficient if you're truly going to serve God. You need encouragement to stand up in the midst of adversity and to persevere and to work hard. You have to combine humility with a self sacrificial willingness to stand with God, regardless of what it costs. Not just costs in terms of how people treat you, but personal costs. Time, you know, things you want to pursue instead of serving God, they come at odds with serving God at times. I don't know how any other way to do it. I, mean, I don't know how you can have everything. Consider the cherubim again. We said they're the example God's using here to show us what creation should be aiming for. Well, look what they do. They showed reverence for God. Remember, they had four wings. Two of them were holding up the glory of God. But what were the other two doing? It says they're covering themselves in an act of humility before God. And they are always at work upholding the glory of God. That's a way of showing reverence as well. But what else do you remember about their description? Remember their legs? The legs were standing up, remember? Standing erect on their legs, upright on their legs. The point is this, they're ready to serve God. And, of course, they have the wheels. They're moving with God all the time, ready to serve. You see, those two things are not counter to one another. You can be completely reverential, showing God all the respect and honor He deserves, and yet be active with Him. That's sometimes a struggle, I think, particularly among Bible church folk. You know, we have such a great reverence for the Word of God and what it tells us about His power, His authority, His sovereignty. Sometimes that impinges a little on our willingness to act because we tell ourselves, well, He can do it all. He doesn't need us. He's already got the plan. It's all going to happen the way he determined, right? We have this sense of grandeur of God's power. All of that's great. But if it becomes excuse to do nothing or to do less than you could have done, now you're using his own word against him. You're using his own power as excuse for something we would rather do with our time. You can never use your reverence for God as an excuse for failing to serve him. It won't work. Acknowledging his power and his might doesn't relieve us of the responsibility to get to the work that he's assigned us. And so I ask you, do you respect the power and the majesty of God? Well, then you do well. In fact, you do better than many. But are you serving this God you revere? Do you merely admire Him from a distance? We're all guilty of that, I think, from time to time. But if it's become a lifestyle, that's a problem. And if you're like Moses, you might be on the other end of the scale. You'd be ready to serve, but you lack an appreciation of the power of God to make your service useful, which means you're going to get discouraged very easily. Or if you're like Ezekiel... Then you're going to get so enraptured by the presence of God and all that He can do and all the power in His Word and you'll never get off of the study and the admiring of God and into the work of God. In fact, isn't that why He reveals Himself to us in the first place? right? So that we would then serve Him? Isn't that really the end goal of of us knowing Him now? I mean, for us, the end goal is being saved. But God didn't need us in heaven. His end goal in saving us was so that we glorify Him through our service. And the ultimate work of service is a life that looks like Him. You don't glorify God by withholding your service. And that's why we have come to serve Him in His power. That's the second half of this. You notice it says here, the Spirit of God entered Ezekiel at that moment, after he hears the words. And it's because of the Spirit of God entering him that he stands on His feet. It's a beautiful picture of what God does in working through those who He uses. He uses His Spirit to create the outcomes. Now, I want to address one thing in passing here because it may raise a question in your mind when you see that the Spirit of God entered Ezekiel, if perhaps you see that from a New Testament point of view, you might be saying to yourself, well, is this when he got saved? Because we know today that as you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are indwelled at that moment by the Holy Spirit. And if we take that thinking and go backward in time, we may think, oh, that's what happened here. But it's not. In the Old Testament dispensation, the Spirit of God worked differently among God's people than he does now. And in the Old Testament times, that is prior to Pentecost, The Spirit did not permanently indwell someone who was otherwise a saint, a believer. Instead, the power of the Spirit would come upon a man or a woman temporarily whenever God wanted to empower that person to serve God in some particular ministry. You see that happening here in Ezekiel. This is where this Old Testament prophet gained the ability to be a prophet because he received the Holy Spirit. By the way, the New Testament tells us every single Old Testament prophet, every legitimate one, all those that we have written in the Scripture, they were able to say what they said because they all had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So simply put, you're not a prophet unless you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Peter says this, 2 Peter one twenty. He says, Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So there had to be this movement of the Spirit in someone's life to make them a prophet. But apart from those special situations, the Spirit of God did not actively empower all Old Testament saints from their moment of salvation. Now this, again, is a bit of an odd thing for us because we don't know any other way. But in the Old Testament, you could be brought to faith by the Holy Spirit, and then he just moves on. He doesn't stay in that person's life in a permanent way. And that's perfectly legitimate. What did God do for the Old Testament saint instead? Well, according to Scripture... God's people, those brought to faith by the Spirit, were then called to live according to the law given through Moses. The law was the believer's guide for obedient service to God. Following the law didn't save them, but having been brought to faith, the law was their method of sanctification. Do the law as it's been prescribed, and you will be obeying God. That was the expectation for the Old Testament saint. It was a law written on stone that they had to follow having come to faith. And it was, according to Scripture, a custodian over the people of God for the time being until a new and better law could be given to God's people in the form of the law of Christ written on our hearts. So the New Testament believer, those of the church today, have the law written on our heart, the Spirit working in us with the knowledge of what pleases God. That law drives our behavior today. An Old Testament saint lacked that inner law, so they were asked to follow the outer law of the Mosaic law. That was their prescription for sanctification. Paul says it this way in Galatians 3.23, Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So, when the situation warranted, in the Old Testament, God would give a person the indwelling of the Holy Spirit so that they could do something beyond and above anything that was being done by general saints, by other believers in that day, like a man like Ezekiel. And so as he lay prostrate here, because of the awesome glory of God, he's made to stand by the Spirit of God, which is God saying, Okay, get on your feet, I've got work for you to do. Here's the means by which you'll do it. That is my Spirit. Now let me tell you what's ahead of you. To go, he says, to be sent to the sons of Israel. Now remember, he's already with the sons of Israel. They're all around him. The people of Judah are there with him. So when it says sent, it doesn't mean a physical journey. He's saying, I've just made you a representative. My representative to these people. You've been sent to them in that respect. And he says that these people that you're sent to are a rebellious people who have rebelled against the Lord. Now he's saying two things there. He's saying that they have a past track record of rebellion and it's also their future destiny. They have and they are. Now, historically, we know about the past. We know that the people of God rebelled against the God who called them out of Egypt. They started that rebellion almost immediately while they're still following Moses out of Egypt. Remember, they get to the edge of the waters and they say, why would you lead us here to die? I mean, they're not even out of Egypt a week, and they're already complaining. That went on for 40 years. Moses dies, Joshua brings him in, they go in and a new generation, picks right back up again shortly after that. They are historically... A people of rebellion in fact the record of israel in the old testament is nothing if not a record of their rebellion and the lord notes that track record in verse three he says they and their forefathers have transgressed against me And he's referring to the nation's failure to keep the old covenant in a word here's what he said they've been breaking my covenant since i gave it to them remember moses he comes down from the mountain with the tablets the heart of that covenant and what are they doing they're breaking the eight or nine of the ten right away He's like, come on guys, we're not even into this a day. Look what you're doing. So that's their failure. And he says to Ezekiel, I'm sending you to a group of people who have historically done bad things with anything they were told to do. But then he also says, they are a rebellious people, which means their hearts are still this way. They haven't changed. This is the most remarkable statement, I think, of anything God says to Ezekiel in these three chapters. Because when you think about what's already happened to them because of this rebellious nature, yet here they are, what... Four years at this point, I guess we said. Four years they've been sitting in this state of captivity already. Four of what will eventually be 70 years. <laughs> Think of it like this. If you took a child who had done the wrong thing and you gave them the harshest punishment you can imagine. you know, Total grounding. Take away everything they own. Put them in their room. They can't see or talk to anybody. and They've been in the room like a week. You've put food under the door and you've taken a bedpan out once a day or something. Really, really harsh, right? About the first week into this, you're thinking, this will show them. Teach them now. So you knock on the door, they talk back when you knock on the door. In other words, there's no sign of repentance. When you think, my goodness, what more do I have to do to you? In a sense, I mean, on a bigger scale, that's what's happened here. This is the first time in the history of Judah that they have seen Jerusalem conquered by a Gentile army. First time it's ever happened. The temple's been defiled. It's soon going to be raised to its foundation. They've been scattered. They've been taken captive. A lot of them have already died. More of them are going to die. And despite all of that, despite that severe rebuke, they still have rebellious hearts, he says. If you ever want a quick reference for an example of what the hardness of the human heart looks like, just go back to this one piece of Ezekiel. These people have seen their lives devastated. Everything has been taken away from them. Their future is forever in doubt because they would not obey the word of the Lord. A word he gave them to bless them, I should add, right? It wasn't a hard word. And after four years in captivity, they don't get it. That's a hard heart. What's missing for these people? Well, simply put, they won't humble themselves. They won't be humble before the Lord. They lack a heart that recognizes that the glory of God is the reason for their existence. That's it. That they're supposed to seek the pleasure of the Lord, not their own pleasure. They need a heart that loves the Lord above everything else. And they don't have that. Not as a people. In verse 4, he says, They are stubborn and they are obstinate. Now, at first, that sounds like saying the same thing two different ways, right? Like synonyms. And in English, they basically are synonyms, but not in Hebrew. The Hebrew word for stubborn is a phrase that's made up of two common words that have a wide variety of meaning in Hebrew. And these shades of meaning can actually help us understand what he's saying about his own people here. The phrase in Hebrew for stubborn is hard-faced. My people are hard-faced. And depending on the context... That second word, panim, can actually be translated several other ways. It can mean east, it can mean honor, it can mean humiliation, it can even mean upside down. Now, how did such a simple word come to be associated with so many different meanings, including the meaning stubborn? Well, the answer is because all of those ideas are related, and they all speak to what's going on in Israel. Face, honor, stubbornness, humiliation, even upside down and east are all speaking about Israel right now. And they all are related by another single word. They're all related by pride. Our face is a representation of our honor. In fact, we even say things like, public humiliation is a loss of face. We use the same kind of terminology. So your pride, if you want to think of it this way, your pride is your appetite for receiving honor. It's an appetite for receiving honor. And your pride will drive you to defend that desire for honor... Under any circumstances, even when you are acting dishonorably, even when you don't deserve it, even when you disobey the Lord, you will stubbornly cling to the perception that I'm still worthy of honor. Euphemistic terms, we would say that person has a hard face. They're stubborn. Their logic is upside down. The Bible says that that kind of pride is a sin, and it's symbolized in Scripture by the cardinal direction east. We've talked about that here in the past, right? Going east in the Bible is a picture of someone departing from God and going toward their pride. Israel, God says, is hard-faced. They are a stubborn people. Even though they sit humiliated in the east, in Babylon right now, they are still defiant. They continue to guard their pride long after they have no basis for being proud. Long after they should have felt humiliation, they're sitting there still thinking well of themselves. Their self-perception is upside down. That's why the word has all those meanings. Their face remains as hard as their hearts. All of those ideas are bound up in this one simple little Hebrew phrase. Then you have the word obstinate. The word obstinate in Hebrew can also be translated as a question. It can be translated, who is stronger? And this offers a lot of insight. Israel's long-standing defiance against the Lord had become a test of wills. They are effectively asking the question to God, who's stronger? Is it you or is it us? Is it your will that will prevail or our will that will prevail? Are you going to get your way or are we going to get our way? And guess how they've been answering that question. We're going to get our way. We're going to do it our way. We're going to care about what we care about. Oh, by the way, because we want to honor our own pride, we're going to continue to tell ourselves that we're doing what you want, even as we do what we want instead. We turn everything upside down and we sit here defiantly with rebellious hearts. That's what God is saying about His own people. Now who really wins those battles? I mean, if God's intent on engaging with us, who's going to win the battle? It's going to be His will. He is going to prevail over His people's stubbornness. But here's the part God is pointing out to Ezekiel. If God's people persist in this illogical pursuit of themselves against the will of God, as God pushes back, that battle goes against them, but it brings collateral damage. If we don't learn early that our pride is the problem, we're going to suffer greater losses as time goes on. As that battle ensues, and if God's intent on getting our attention, he just ratchets it up. He's like the parent dealing with the kid that's not getting the lesson. I'll tell you about my daughter, I think, at one point in the past. I may have mentioned the example when she was really young, two years, three years old. We were a family that didn't have a problem giving a little swat on the on the rear once in a while, and you, know, you do it if you need to to get their attention. And with my daughter, it wasn't really that effective because you'd give her that little smack. My wife told me this one time. My daughter, she actually said this to us. That didn't hurt. You know what happens when you're, when you're mad at your child already and they tell you that didn't hurt? You just want to go, okay, check this out. you know? But you don't. Better angels of our nature kick in at that point and we say, you know what? I'm just going to hold back. But you still got to find something. You got to get their attention somehow, right? Well, that's essentially what God is telling Ezekiel. I'm sending you to them. They're not going to listen. They're stubborn. They're rebellious. They're still that way. You're going to go anyway. So, to this stubborn and obstinate people, God sends his prophet, one who's in their predicament, even though he doesn't share their heart. But given their history, what's the prospect that he's going to have any success? I mean, when you think about how God's setting this up, what realistic success rate do you expect him to have with this people group? And the answer is obvious, right? Not much. I mean, he may get to a few of them, but generally, They're not going to receive him. In fact, the Lord even acknowledges that in what he says to Ezekiel. In verse 5, the Lord tells Ezekiel, You speak whether Israel listens or not. Now obviously the Lord already knows what's going to happen, right? So we know he's not suggesting that the outcome is a mystery to him. Hey, we don't know what's going to happen, Ezekiel. Let me just go send you out there. I'm not expecting much, but we'll see what happens. No, he's not saying it that way. The Lord's speaking as if from Ezekiel's perspective. God knows what's going to happen. What he's saying to Ezekiel is this, regardless of what kind of reception you find when you go, nevertheless, you are to persist in this mission that I'm giving you. And he says, you're going to do it because I have other reasons. And the reason he gives for Ezekiel pursuing this somewhat hopeless mission is he says to demonstrate to Israel that there is a prophet among them. Which is to say, to show them that you are a prophet. That's the key verse of this chapter and it sets up the rest of the book. God's purpose for Ezekiel's prophecy was not necessarily to reach this generation of Israel. It is instead for something else. His purpose in speaking is to validate his call as a prophet. Now that may sound a bit circular to you at first. In other words, I want you to prophesy Ezekiel for the purpose of showing that you're a prophet. But it's not what he's saying. Look beyond the exiles in Babylon. You have this group of people that he's been sent to talk to. God just says, whether they listen or not, he's not particularly focused on that group. But think past them. Think generations later. Even generations after us today. And when you look at that group of people, God has a lot to say to them through Ezekiel. He had a lot to say to the people of that day concerning judgments they were going to experience. But He has even more to say to you and I and to people who come even after us. To the future saints, Ezekiel is going to prophesy some pretty amazing things. He's going to tell us about a coming war that we haven't seen yet, that's coming at the end of this age, which ends in a spectacular, supernatural way. We'll study that when we get to Ezekiel 38. He's going to teach us about a new and greater temple that God is going to set up in Jerusalem. And this temple is one mile square. The building itself is a mile square. That's coming. He's going to teach us about a mountain that God's going to raise up on the earth in the place today of what is Jerusalem. And in the day that this mountain gets raised up, it will be the highest mountain anywhere on the earth. That's coming. He's going to teach us about a river that God is going to have flow out of Jerusalem to the east. That river is going to flow through the Arba, through the wilderness of Judah, eventually reach the Dead Sea, and it's going to be so powerful, it's going to create a freshwater lake, where today it's a dead lake, dead sea, and there's going to be teeming fish in it after that. That's yet to come. Most of all, Ezekiel speaks about the glory of God residing again in Jerusalem, reigning over a worldwide kingdom physically on this earth. That's what Ezekiel, that's what he has to tell the world. And none of those visions had anything to do with the people who were sitting in exile in Babylon in his day. That's all stuff that's future even for us. They're fantastic visions. They're unparalleled In Scripture, you'd be hard-pressed to find anything given to us in the Old Testament that can equal the stuff Ezekiel sees. So the question then comes, how can God's people believe any of this stuff? How do we know that what Ezekiel was saying was not the product of a bad trip on LSD? How do you trust it? Well, God says that because Ezekiel will prophesy to exiles, and those exiles will see those prophecies come true in their day, then based on that flawless track record, we will have confidence to know that everything he said is from God. That's the whole point. He had to prophesy to exiles, whether they listened to him or not, because it was important for God that Ezekiel's ministry be understood to be truly prophetic. That's a typical pattern in the Old Testament. Prophets would often get near-term prophecies that once they were fulfilled, served to validate them as prophets so that then their longer-term visions could be appreciated. That's a common pattern. And Ezekiel is being told right now, if you judge your success in this ministry based on the short-term results, you're going to miss the big picture. And I think this had to have been a great blessing to this man, knowing what he dealt with later. There had to be a lot of times, dark days during his ministry, when he was trying to reach these exiles, he was offering them words of life and they would just mock him, as you're going to see later, and reject him. Days in which God calls him to do some pretty difficult, even humiliating things, personally. And I'm sure he looked at those moments and he's like, you know, if it weren't for the fact that I know you got a bigger plan here, I wouldn't be doing this right now. I think I'd draw a line right about here. That's just me talking. I don't know if he ever had that thought. But I can assure you that knowing God has a bigger purpose, it definitely helped. Don't you all wish you had that a little bit? A version of that you know wouldn't you all like to know god's true purpose in your life or your ministry if you want to call it that what god's called you to do in this world wouldn't it be easier for example to persist as a struggling missionary if you knew that your lack of converts wasn't the end of the story there was actually something bigger going on or a, a christian parent wouldn't you feel relief if you knew god's purpose did not depend on you happening to raise perfectly obedient children that that wasn't the end of your story either Or just a Sunday school teacher who works to put a class together, wouldn't that person have a greater sense of joy around that work if they knew their success was not measured by how many people showed up or how much they learned? My point is this. We all tend to limit our service to God based on the results we see. It's human nature to do that. When things are looking good to us, we serve gladly. We get more excited. You know, as a teacher, I can tell you, when you prepare a class to teach and the room is busting at the seams, you're just feeling rewarded. But it's a dangerous feeling, and it's not necessarily coming from the right heart. Because when the results aren't up to our expectations, you know, when you put all the same effort in, and you get three people to a study, and I've seen that happen, uh, your tendency at that point is to give up. And at the end of the day, that is a self-centered perspective. We're assigning ourselves too much credit for whatever happens, and we're assigning God too little. And I think any Christian can be guilty of serving God from that selfish mindset, and we often do it without even realizing we have that thought. If you want to test your own heart on this point, ask yourself this question. How would you feel if God told you something like what he told Ezekiel? Like, for example, what if he told you, I want you to go away to a faraway place to be a missionary, preach the gospel, but eh, you're not going to convert anybody while you're there. But I want you to go anyway just so they know I sent you. Or be a godly parent. I want you to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but they aren't going to obey you. They aren't going to take your advice. But I want you to do it anyway because I want them to know I sent you. Or organize and teach a Sunday school, but only two people are going to show up, and neither of them are going to listen. Been there. If you're going to be honest with yourself for a moment, if you've heard something like that, pick another scenario, doesn't matter. But you knew going in, you weren't going to get any results. Does that diminish your desire to serve the Lord even a little bit? If so, it might suggest that you've been serving the Lord for your glory, even as you called it His glory. You've been serving Him for the chance to see the result because you knew that in seeing it, you could gain a sense of pride in that accomplishment. In reality, if that's where your heart is, then you're only serving yourself. And I think we can all identify with that because we've all done that at least once, right? And especially when we're young and you were early in service, it's a natural thing to start with, but it's not where we're supposed to stay. But let me ask you this. What if God told you just a little more? What if he told the missionary that even though he wouldn't gain any converts by himself, in a generation to come, because of the seeds that he planted, God would bring along a great revival through other men? Or if he told those parents, look, even though your children aren't going to heed your advice, God's going to use your example of faith to inspire a hundred other families around you to raise godly children. Can you be satisfied that someone else's children turn out godly because of your dedication? And what if the Sunday school teacher learns that even though that class had only a couple students in it, one of those students would later become a renowned preacher for the gospel based on what they learned? You see the point, right? Knowing God can use your service to bring himself glory in ways beyond what you yourself do in your own life, knowing that is an encouragement, or it should be, to persevere even though you don't get to see the result in your own lifetime. Even though you don't know necessarily if you got what you wanted. If you're willing to withstand personal failure and look past those difficult circumstances, you're demonstrating faith in a God that can do great things through those he calls, rather than showing faith in your own ability. Let me share a secret with you. Those what-ifs I just walked through, that's how it always works. That is how it works. God always has a bigger purpose in what you do when you serve Him. He is not isolated in one person's life. Like you have this little sphere of influence and He uses you and then when you die it's all sort of wrapped up and put on the shelf. And that's not how anybody's life and service works to God. He is constantly using our service to accomplish eternal outcomes, most of which you will not see in your lifetime. I think one of the greatest pleasures or rewards of getting to the kingdom and being in that place and in time to come will be encountering all these people that you never met while you were here who will be able to say through the insight God offers all of us, thank you for your faithfulness. I'm imagining those kinds of conversations happening constantly in the kingdom where we didn't appreciate what God could do through us. Many of those outcomes you won't see. You'll learn about only later. So that's why we're called to operate in faith now. And then we'll see what God does with it when the time comes. So we come to God in reverence, recognizing He is God, not us. But we come to Him ready to serve because we understand He has power in the Spirit that He gives us to do greater things than we could ever do on our own or even greater than we can see. I don't know what God has done in the time He's given me to serve Him. I hope it's a lot of great things. It'll be dependent on what He's chosen to do. I know that. But I have a hopeful expectation that when I show up in the kingdom, I'm going to meet a whole bunch of people who God used the ministry that God has given me to reach with His Word. What I'll be able to say is, man, if I could have seen what God was willing to do through my efforts, why didn't I even try more for that? I mean, it just seems like I could have gone further with what He was doing. We'll all get a sense of that. Let's be obedient without concern for results today because it is our our reasonable service of worship, Paul says in Romans 12. As long as your concern is for his glory, that's our call. Dear Father, thank you for the blessing of serving you as I said at the outset of our teaching this morning. Thank you for the blessing to serve. Thank you that you can do so much through what we give you. Forgive us, Father, when we have held back our service, whether out of ignorance, selfishness, or otherwise, Father. And help us, Father, to grow in that service. Help us to understand where you want us to go. Some of us are sitting here today, Father, not even sure of how to serve, where to go, what you would call us to do. Give us confidence, Father, to know that you can speak to us, whether through a vision or through a simple word from a friend, whether by the word of God in our hands or through the prayer time that we spend with you. Whatever it is you may choose to do to communicate to us, Father, we have confidence in your ability. Perhaps, Father, you've been waiting for us to ask the question. So send us where you will, Father. Help us to be reverential, but ready to stand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.